This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. We're going to get right to it this morning in reaction to Governor Gretchen Whitmer's State of the State message on uh, Wednesday night. We have got on the other line with us Representative Pam Hornberger, a return engagement. She is a Republican from Chesterfield Township, and her 32nd House District straddles the Macomb St. Clair County line, I believe she represents Memphis, New Baltimore, Richmond, and eight townships. Is that correct, correct. Representative Hornberger? That's correct. Chesterfield Township, too, yep. There you go. Well, let me ask you, uh, what is your reaction to, in particular, what the governor said about education in her state of the state? Because you've got a, I think, unique background among 148 legislators. I think you're the only legislator who taught in a K-12 public school classroom while you were serving on the school board in a neighboring district. Is that correct? I believe that is correct. I mean, it's correct for me. I believe I'm the only (laughs) one who has that unique experience. Well, (laughs) tell us uh, what you want to say. And I know you've got a couple of bills in the legislature, too, 5297. And uh, maybe you're also willing to comment about what the governor said about third grade reading. Well, yeah, that was one of the things I I, I would love to talk about. Um, I think um, the governor would like to, or she has a plan to kind of end around the third grade reading law and, um, you know, has engaged some community people to um, start educating parents about how they um, skirt the law is basically what she plans to do. So instead of concentrating on educating kids and putting resources towards educating, you know, third graders and helping our educators, you know, facilitate that, She's more, um, you know, she's she's worried about helping parents skirt the law, which I think is very disingenuous because when she line-item vetoed all of that stuff last fall, um, one a couple of the things she line-item vetoed directly affected third-grade reading. One of them was a summer program that's to um, provide money to school districts to support, you know, third-graders and kids that were um, lower elementary kids that were behind in reading. So she vetoes that. And now she wants to help parents learn how to skirt the law instead of just stepping up and taking responsibility and realizing that we need to make sure educators have what they need to educate all students and that, you know, we are moving that third grade, you know, reading process along. Yeah, let's uh, clarify this for our listeners. Uh, When we're talking about third grade reading proficiency, The legislature passed a law signed by former Governor Rick Snyder, which went into effect, I believe, this is the first academic year, isn't it? Yeah, this is the first year that kids would be um, held back if they are not reading at the third grade level. So let's point out that they're supposed to be reading at the third grade level by the end of third grade when reality is they should be reading by the fourth grade level at the end of third grade. Right. Well, let me ask you, when you say she's skirting the law, I understand, uh, I would say, undercutting uh, the law when she vetoes a line item which is designed to help kids uh, reach third grade reading proficiency. She vetoes funds for that. That just undercuts 
the ability of students to gain yeah. proficiency by the end of third grade. But you say um, in the speech, she said what sounds like skirting the law. Like how how do they convince? How does she convince parents to skirt the law? What does that mean? Um, I, I don't. I don't think she's. In, she is. Um, she's working with some community groups to get the word out there about you know what what is in place in the law and how parents can you know avoid that retention piece if that's coming their way. They will get notification from the state, and then their school districts are supposed to work with them. There are some things in place. <clears throat> excuse me. If students are performing you know above grade level in other subjects, <clears throat> excuse me, where they would. Um, be allowed to move to fourth grade, right? And uh, and she is uh, basically, you know, taking a lot of precious time to engage the community and just learning how you get around the law. Yeah, in other words, there are exceptions for certain students under certain circumstances, right? To avoid being held back at the end of third grade if they're not proficient in reading. And you're saying she looks like she's going to be encouraging parents on how they can use those exceptions to get out of having to qualify for reading proficiency at the end of third grade, in addition to vetoing funds that would help kids be schooled in reading leading up to taking the test at the end of third grade, right? Correct. And, and you know, just a few months ago, the department um, cut or changed the cut scores for the third grade reading law. So that would have lowered the percentage of kids that would have been held back. And then at that same time, we had superintendents coming forward saying the percentage of kids, third graders, that would be held back, you know, they, they were tracking it according to what's in the law, the third grade reading law, wasn't much different than the percentage that would normally be held back on any given year prior to that. So right. with the MDE changing the, the cut score percentages and with what's available, you know, to move students forward in the law, the the percentages weren't going to be much different than they were prior to the law. Right. Let's switch to another subject, and that is vision care for students. Now, you have introduced a bill, 5297. I think there was a hearing on it the other day. You had an optometrist from Owasso, Dr. Roger Seeley, come in and testify and really kind of gave some shocking statistics, like, uh, you know, as many as you know, 70% of all students have some kind of vision problems. And in fact, a lot of what people have been diagnosing as, for years as deficiencies in their reading ability is not really deficient in their reading ability if they could just see the page. They can't, they can't see right. And so it requires what? Some kind of vision exam, right? So, yes. And I was very passionate about this when, when I first heard about this, I had some experience with it with my own daughter when she was in school, um, having this vision issue. And her issue was that her eyes weren't tracking together. So, you know, one eye's moving one way, one eye's moving the other way. She's trying to read. And for her, what was happening was the words were actually moving around on the page. Wow. So it, it's a gross motor, fine motor um, function that um, develops in kids naturally when they're little and they're crawling and pulling themselves up on things and all those connections are made in the brain. Um, and, and for a lot of kids, some of those connections aren't developed. And um, what we're learning is um, 20, about 25% of the kids that are, are um, identified as special ed actually have a reading issue, an eye tracking issue, some type of um, eye issue that if it's corrected early on, they would not be special ed. 
Well, so, can this can this be corrected? Yes, and so we're taking a look at that. I'm very, very um, glad to be working with Dr. Seeley and his group. Um, it is something we can correct, and we do think we can get there with minimal amount of money from the state. We have some grants that are going to be available, and we need to tweak some things in our bill to make sure, you know, we're, we're covering everything and we're not let, leaving any kids uncovered. Um, but, yes, I'm, I'm really passionate about if we can keep kids out of the special ed system, which, as you know, everyone knows, is just detrimental. For It, it affects the, your entire life. Um, right, absolutely. You know, by, by spending uh, um, some time to do a more comprehensive eye exam when they're younger and making sure that, you know, it's not an eye issue as opposed to an actual learning disability, you know, we, we can save a lot of kids and a lot of families a lot, a lot of heartache. Well, what do you think the chances are of getting this bill passed? And do you get any signal from the Whitmer administration that they would support something like this? You know what? I, I haven't talked to anyone from the governor's office. I'm hoping that... You know, I'm going to work with some of the um, my colleagues on the committee, both Democrat and Republican, you know, seem to be supportive, but with lots of questions. So we need to work through it. We have had this um, this put in place in other states. So we're looking at their model. And I'm hoping once we work through all that, we'll have some good bipartisan support to get this through and and really um, help some families and some students. Well, Representative Hornberger, you've given a great explanation of two very important educational issues, and believe it or not, we're out of time. We could go on forever. (laughs) But uh, thank (laughs) you so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk about this. Representative Pam Hornberger from the 32nd House District. Thank you, Representative Hornberger. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anytime. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned and we have our longtime friend Mark Grebner on the other line. Mark, thanks for being with us on The Political Insider. I'm very happy to be on. And Mark is a man of many talents. Uh, For decades, he has been Michigan's leading political list broker. Maybe he still is. He is... uh, a chief cook and bottle washer at Practical Political Consulting, and he is an elected county commissioner in Ingham County, including the city of Lansing. Uh, that is not in his district, but that is where his district is located nearby in East Lansing. So, Mark, let me just ask you this as a longtime observer of capital politics. What about the governor's state of the state message this year, particularly her plan B on fix the damn roads and the reaction to it by the Republicans in the legislature and by the news media general public? What do you think? What's your reaction? Well, I tend not to be uh, very excited by ceremonies. And, and I think, you know, state of the state addresses or fall precisely into a ceremonial uh, role. So I can talk about, uh, I, I'm not a very good critic of, of say, weddings and funerals and, and uh, homecomings and so forth, but, but this, the State of the State address sometimes includes an actual strategic move, something that actually is news, not, not merely somebody going through a really is like a move on a chessboard. Is this uh, bonding proposal for the roads? I, I think it's 
it's fairly interesting what's going on there. But but the rest of the speech, I'm sorry, it just makes my eyes glaze over, and I just want it to be over. So it's the, it's exactly the way I act at funerals. So. <laughs> well, I don't blame you for your reaction, but let me ask you this. Um, do you think that her bonding proposal is, a, you know, a credible, if not solution, at least step forward in terms of fix the damn roads? Well, it's a step forward the way that a move on a chessboard is a step forward. I mean, you may move the night forward or you may move the night over, um, but it, it exposes new pieces and makes counter moves by the other side. It's, it, it, it is a clever move. I don't know if ultimately she's going to win the game or if, it's going to, if she's going to look back on that move as having been bold and successful. But, but let's talk about what the move really did. As far as I can tell... What she has done is she has told the Republican caucus, which has a very clear position, which is that they're not going to spend any money, new money on roads, because they can't ever support any taxes. I mean, it's a pretty radical position. Really, no other state in the country has a Republican Party, which is committed to destroying its road system. I mean, Michigan is unique there. And, And so she's basically threatened them with diverting the next, I don't know, 15 years of revenue away from local roads, and not completely, but but diverting a couple billion dollars of it, specifically to state highways and U.S. highways, but state highways, which tend to be much more uh, urban and metropolitan than the roadway system, which is paid for out of what's called Act 53 money. So... She's basically told the Republicans, okay, you won't pass anything useful, and you do nothing but play games, and so I'm going to take several billion dollars away from the local road system, which will create even a bigger crisis than we've already got, and now you will have to come to the table and pass something, because it will really be intolerable when this money is pulled out of the, lo- the bigger formula. Yeah, let me let let me just ask you at this point, um, let's say the Republicans continue to be recalcitrant, as you say, and do not pass any new uh, tax hike to create more revenue for fix the damn roads. And all we've got is the three point five billion dollar bond issue going forward because she's already gotten the Transportation Commission to approve it. What would you do here in Ingham County where you are an elected member of the state board, excuse me, the county board of commissioners? What would you do about uh, deteriorating local roads if money is going to be robbed from your local road system to fund these uh, expressways and uh, state roads and metropolitan areas? What would you do? Would you pass a local? Would you like to pass a local gas tax hike to raise revenue locally, what would you do? Well, let's, let's also be clear that there will still be some money in the old system, but there will be even less right. than there has been. Right. So we've, we've played with the idea of a, of a property tax millage, which is difficult in Ingham, but, but we could do it. We could put it on the ballot, and I think it would be approved. Um, but certainly a gas tax would be a wonderful tool to have, but the radicals in the Republican caucus are so crazy that they won't even allow local counties and so on to, to approve their own taxes on their own people 
with a vote. Well, we in don't. Words, well, we don't quite know that yet. I mean, there's a well, rep- representative playing, running around the bush. You're allowing yourself to be distracted by the fact that a handful of very brave Republicans have sort of dissented, but they're going to be beaten back into place. You watch. <laughs> well, you could be right. Uh, Representative Jack O'Malley, I know, has a local gas tax hike bill that he That's is right. pretty adamant about. He would like to see pass. Uh, he's gotten blowback from his own constituents about it. But, you know, the Republicans could decide, you know, maybe this is a viable option uh, that we would be willing to give to the governor herself and to local communities to raise revenue. Maybe they will shock the world, Mark, and actually well, go for this. Remember, O'Malley is one of the handful of Republicans left who represent metropolitan districts. There aren't many. Well, he doesn't know. Right? He doesn't. He doesn't have a Not really. No, he's northwestern Michigan. He's way up there. He's Ludington. Oh, I'm sorry. Bel Air. I mean, these are small towns. He's not I'm from sorry, that no, area no. at I'm all. I'm sorry. I was thinking. I was placing him in Oakland County. My apologies. Yeah. Okay. Does he include? He includes Grand Traverse, though. No. 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 He oh, no. Right. no he's well, all along the northwest coast. Four sparsely pos- populated counties: Manistee, well, Leelanau, Benzie. You know. Okay. In that case, he deserves a you know like profiles and courage, a medal of honor. Um, well, but but. The thing is that the Republican caucus is going to have to sign off on this because because taxes are such a uh, uh, third-rail issue for them that, that they're not going to let the Democrats combine with two or three renegade Republicans to pass something like this. Well, you could be right, but on the other hand, the Republicans are going to say, look, all we're doing is giving a tool to local units of government. They can decide individually in these various spots around the state whether they want to put this on the ballot in their uh, counties to hike a gas tax on a local basis. Uh, the Republicans in Lansing would not be doing it. They're just giving them the opportunity to do this. They've got this in a lot of other states. The, there are lots of things in other states. Other states actually are putting money into their roads. What I, what I'm, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make, perhaps ineffectually, is that in Michigan we seem to have a Republican Party which has actually decided that the status quo is okay, or the status quo is a declining status quo. It's not stable, but where the roads are breaking up every day. And and that that spending any money on them is is too leftist for them. It's too socialist. Right. Okay, listen, we, we haven't even gotten to the State of the Union. I'll just ask you this coming out of the break, which we've got to take right now, and then we'll get to your favorite subject. Okay. Back in a minute. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with vaunted cephalogists, which means a study of elections. Mark Grebner, and we've been talking about the governor's state of the state. And very briefly, I just want to ask you, Mark, because this is really a unique event that a Michigan governor gives her state of the state on the eve of delivering the partisan response, in this case, a Democratic response to a president's State of the Union address next week, next Tuesday. Gretchen Whitmer is going to do this in reaction to President Donald Trump. What do you make of this? Does it make any real difference at all? Should we be excited about this or not? 
Well, I don't know that it makes any difference to policy, but it is interesting that the powers that be, whoever those are in the Democratic Party, seems to have decided that, that Governor Whitmer is a rising young star and needs to be showcased. I mean, this is a pretty good opportunity. It's a plum. It could have been handed to absolutely anybody. And for whatever reason, somebody has decided that the best use of it is is to is to showcase her for, I don't know, what is it, 15 minutes or so? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, of course, it's a twofer. Uh, not only is she maybe a rising star in the Democratic Party, but she is the governor of Michigan, which is one of the key states the Democrats have to win this year to get the presidency back, right? Yeah. Yeah, but still, it, it, there must be some interesting calculations that went into it. And part of it may be that, that her the alternatives may have been too closely associated with specific presidential campaigns. At this point, unless I've lost track of this, uh, I believe Whitmer has still not endorsed anybody. So, you know, maybe that, that might have played a little role in the calculation. Right. Okay, let's get to your favorite subject, and that is voting, and voting particularly in the presidential primary coming up very fast on March 10th. Uh, Proposal 3 passed in the fall of 2018, which expanded uh, the voting franchise to a certain extent and also uh, allowed for no reason absentee voting. Uh, Voting is already in ongoing, uh, leading up uh, to the presidential primary. Uh, how do you look at what's going on and the challenges being faced by Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson as she tries to administer this new law? Well, the, the whole Proposal 3 uh, uh, plan has so many aspects. It, it's changing voting in a lot of ways, some of which will take a while to unfold. Uh, as you said, uh, no reason absentee voting is suddenly available after being blocked by the Republicans in the legislature just absolutely forever. And so finally, this got around them. Um, but it's being implemented only township and city, one township and city at a time, because to really take advantage of it, you need to get your name on the list of what's called permanent absentees, which are not really permanent or absentee, but, but the list to whom absentee ballot applications are automatically mailed before each election. Well, different townships and cities have different policies of recruiting people for that. And so in many places, they have recruited nobody, and the people voting by absentee ballot are pretty much just the usual suspects. But in other places, like Lansing, uh, the clerk has been aggressive in, in bringing people in because all you have to do is say, yes, put my name on the list. And he's recruited 10,000 or so people to add to that list. That's happened all around the state that specific cities have encouraged people to do it, while the adjacent city or township simply ignored it. So what we're seeing is, a, is an expansion of absentee use by people under the age of 60 that is specific to townships and cities, and, and in some cases counties, scattered around the state. It's, it's becoming kind of a checkerboard of places that, that the absentee rate has gone way up. So in recent elections in Lansing, well over half of the total vote has been by absentee ballot, which is an unprecedented number anywhere in the state. And so we're beginning to see that kind of a, a change. And once it happens anywhere, it's kind of irreversible, because once you start encouraging everybody to vote absentee, the word gets out how easy it is. I personally have already mailed my ballot back, for example. Um, so, so I think that we're going to see an increase in absentee voting, which changes the dynamic of voting in the state in many ways. It means that, that candidates have to spend money earlier, and the, the money they spend is, is spent largely on mail or other, say, social media targeted to the people who have applied for and returned at, or received absentee ballots and have not yet returned them. In other states that have moved in the direction of, of mail-in voting, 
the election just seems to move back in the calendar. And so Election Day is no longer the big event. It's the it's the day that the carnival is all loaded on its trucks and drives away. It's it's the end of the season, you know. Right. Well, let me let me ask you this. Uh, right now, as I understand it, clerks cannot start counting the absentee ballots until Election Day. And there's actually a move in the legislature by former Secretary of State Ruth Johnson, now a state senator, to help Jocelyn Benson and the state by saying, you know, let's let the clerks start counting these absentee votes early because otherwise there's going to be chaos on election night because they're going to have all these backed up absentee ballots in addition to same day March 10th voting. Well, the chaos would just be that we end up announcing election results kind of late. Um, and it makes sense to, to do various you know, manual operations earlier and to, and to change the laws. The laws are set up on the assumption you have a handful of out-of-towners and elderly people who are handicapped, and so we can count their ballots. And You know, here in the clerk's office, there are only going to be 10 or 20 or 50 of them. The idea that Detroit might have 200,000 absentee ballots to count on, you know, on election night, and they're not allowed to open any of them until 8 p.m., uh, well, that law is just not set up for that. And like all of Michigan law, nobody amends it, it and they just fight over it in, in partisan ways. And so it freezes in place. So we now have election law that makes perfect sense for 1965, but isn't really adaptable to what we have today. My, my guess is that one of these days, one of these clever ballot uh, printing companies is going to come up with a system that, you know, that the ballot itself can be kind of opened and flattened out and put in a pile by a machine, and, and that'll help solve this problem. But nobody has offered that yet. Somebody somebody really ought to get on that because there's money to be made. Right. On the presidential primary day itself, March 10th, uh, is there anything else you're looking at that you think is very interesting uh, in addition to what you've said already? Well, since that remarkable day in, in November 2012 or 2016, in which the administration uh, 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 became Trumpish, every election that has been held has had a surprising turnout on the Democratic side. And, and sometimes these turnouts have not had much to do with what was on the ballot. We've just seen a kind of an energized electorate. Uh, um, even among young people and, and various groups that had relatively poor turnout. So I kind of think that we may have another really surprising turnout. Uh, I have no idea how, who that benefits or, or whatever, but on the Republican side, of course, voting is, is, an, is an empty formality because I think the Republican Party won't even use the results of the primary for the purpose of uh, allocating delegates to the national convention. So in other words, to vote Republican for Donald Trump it is really not to do anything important. I mean, you can do it; it'll be recorded, but it won't it won't have any effect on, on an election. So the entire uh, uh, theater is focused on the Democratic side, where you have the whole clown car of candidates. In fact, it's a clown bus; it's practically a clown train. Um, <laughs> some of whom have, have tried to get off the bus, but who you know the the doors were sealed back in November, and so they they have they're being delivered to the objective. And, and and so we're going to see, you know, a pretty substantial turnout, maybe not a record turnout, but but at least a couple million total votes, I think. That, that'll be interesting in itself. And, and I suspect it's going to draw in a lot more young people and people who have not participated in presidential primaries in the past, but who have been motivated by the specter of four more years of Donald Trump. It's going to be pretty difficult to predict who is the favorite to win the Democratic primary on March 10th until after Super Tuesday which is a week previous, right? March 
3rd. I mean, so much is going to happen between now and March 10th that could change the dynamic overwhelmingly from the way it looks today. Yes, but let's note that the absentee ballots had better be marked by not much later than Super Tuesday, not later than about Wednesday. If they're going to get put back in the mail, say, on Thursday and delivered to the clerk's office, I hope, on Saturday or Monday. So... Uh, the election day focus, as we've talked about, may only be half the total vote here. Right. Um, yeah, that that's the most important thing I think you've noted that, I mean, you said you've already got your ballot in, right? And yes. so what happens between now and March 10th is immaterial to you personally. You're done. I'm done. <laughs> Well, thank you, Mark Grebner. That was a great explanation of what is going to happen between now and March 10th. We'll have you back again. You always do a great job, Mark Grebner. Thank you. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with our special guest, Janelle Leonard. She is the owner of Marketing Resource Group, one of the most prominent political consulting firms in Lansing. And she just took it over, I think, late last year from the Mm -hmm. man who was one of the co-founders, Tom Shields. Janelle Leonard, thank you for being with us on The Political Insider. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. Well, I'd like to ask you, uh, what was your reaction to the governor's state of the state message, uh, in particular, her plan B for fix the damn roads, her bonding proposal? Uh, What was your overall Mm -hmm. impression? Sure. So, I mean, a couple things come to mind. Um, I feel like she was a, it was a very safe speech. Um, I feel like catered to her base. She talked about roads, education, healthcare, things that definitely matter to uh, a re-election campaign. Um, nothing monumental. I mean, we obviously knew roads would be, would be a big issue, and obviously 45-cent gas tax did not really appeal to 80% of the voters nor the legislature. So we knew she had to come up with something. Um, and even the bonds proposal is a good re-election um, effort, too, because my understanding um, is that the bonds are going to be taken out over the next three years. So it's about a billion dollars a year. So, again, leading up to a re-election effort. So, so I would, that, that's my overall summary of it, some surprises that I had. Um, I was very surprised that she was as negative as what she was towards the legislature. I mean, there's not just one branch of government. There is uh, the executive branch, obviously, that proposes uh, policy changes in the legislature that has to implement that. But uh, she could have definitely focused more on some of the accomplishments that they have been able to achieve together over the past year. There's been, obviously, the no-fault reform, which was huge. I mean, they've been trying this for years to get some meaningful reform done, and it got maybe 10 seconds in the uh, the state of the state. And even with that, she could have mentioned some critical members that were um, very important to that policy change. Obviously, Shirky and Chatfield, but then also Wentworth, 
who was the chair of the uh, the special committee on no fault. But I was surprised that she she didn't highlight that as much. They've also achieved criminal justice reform um, and mental health um, legislation that's been going through. So she had a lot of accomplishments she could have touted. Um, and again, just realizing that there is a partnership. You know, whether or not you like it, it's constitutional. There are three branches of government, and especially when it comes to policy, making sure that the legislature is is um, seen as a partner at the end of the day. I will give Snyder credit for that. When we worked on a variety of state of the states with him throughout the years, um, he was very he he made it a priority to mention members that were part of his priorities. He would mention bill sponsors, committee chairs, and especially even acknowledging the leaders that were outgoing. And I don't think she mentioned Chatfield at all, other than addressing like "thank you for having me." Kind of thing. So I, that again, that was more personal because I have a heart for the legislature and having come from uh, working in the governor's office, I, I see how important that relationship is. I was a little surprised on the negativity, but it's a very interesting and short speech. So, <laughs> yeah, short speech, maybe the shortest in history, certainly in recent Absolutely. history, only about 35 minutes. Amazing. Uh, one of the things she said, I remember, was when people see orange barrels around the state in the next couple of years, uh, they can say that this administration was responsible for getting it done. In other words, they're right. basically saying Republicans in the legislature have given me no support whatsoever. Anything you see being done is being done because of me and my administration. Now, of course, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky and House Speaker Lee Chatfield had a press conference the day after the governor's mm-hmm. address, and they said, you know, uh, seriously, we spent a record amount of money on road renovation and reconstruction last year as a result of the plan the Republicans passed in the fall of 2015. So the idea that we're doing nothing to help address Michigan's problem with infrastructure is erroneous. And, you know, we probably deserve a heck of a lot more credit than the governor was willing to give us in her speech. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, in this past year, remember, we've been operating under Snyder's last budget that was um, that was negotiated in the legislature, right? So all the barrels that we saw this past summer was a result of Snyder's negotiations with Mikoff and Leonard that year before. So again, it's just kind of a, a year lapse there. So now this is actually her first summer coming in. This is actually her, um, the, the policies that she's negotiated will now be realized. Um, and seen. So, yes, and then to Shirky and, and Chatfield's credit, too, yes, they did put $400 million in one-time funding in, and it was vetoed. And it literally, that's where I go back to, you know, there are three branches of government, and when it comes to the policy side, you have to work in a good uh, a partnership. Aspect. Like, that has to be your perspective. You have to make that a priority. Um, and there could be an additional $400 million one-time funding going to going to roads across the board. So they, they have put other all, um, options on the table, other alternatives, but it really has been it's, it's my way or the highway with the governor with the 45-cent gas tax increase. Let me ask this question. Uh, coming up on Tuesday is going to be Governor Whitmer's response as a Democrat to President Trump's State of the Union speech. This is the first time in history we've had a Michigan governor do this. And it comes right after she gave her state of the state message. I mean, we've never had this before. It's historically novel. It's never occurred. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, is this significant or not? Are we making too much of this? And and what do you expect she is going to say on Tuesday? I mean, she's tried to stay away from attacking President Trump personally over time, uh, however critical she's been of other Republicans, particularly at the state level, as you pointed out. Do you think she will use this occasion to take partisan digs at the president, or do you think she'll try to tout her accomplishments and maybe even her proposal for $3.5 billion in bonds to fix the damn roads? What do you think? <laughs> sure. Um, well, it's uh, she is an attractive um, person to be put in this position, because obviously the White House is going to go through the Midwest, right? And her being um, one of the more, I don't want to say shiny objects, but she's very attractive. She's articulate. She can she can um, get the message across from the Democrats. So, and obviously Michigan's a battleground state. This is where, you know, a lot of attention is going to be given over the next several months. So I can absolutely see why they chose her for that. She's also chosen um, and shown that she is willing to be, by, uh, to be partisan. She's willing to throw out the red meat. Um, one thing she mentioned in her state of the state, and it, it's humorous to me, you know, when Michigan has a Democrat governor, there's traditionally a Republican in the White House and vice versa. When there's a Republican governor, traditionally there's a Democrat in the White House. So based off of the economy, you know, Democrats uh, will blame, you know, which whichever party is serving in whichever uh, position. So in her state of the state, she mentioned that, you know, she was touting the $2.2 billion investment in Detroit for GM. And I guarantee the president as well that he did that, not her. She did. And it's going to be back and forth. You know, success has a million fathers. So I'm sure there's going to be some of that, like who takes credit for the economy doing well um, and some of the um, some of the, the bigger issues going on. I I don't think she'll mention the the roads um, because it is more state specific. But it wouldn't surprise me if she gets more into the red meat, um, but also plays it safe. She has been rumored to be a uh, in consideration for vice president, so I want her. I'm sure she's uh, thinking that in the back of her mind. Don't do anything to screw anything up. But if I were a personal advisor, I probably would recommend her not doing the response because it never really ends up being good politically in the future for others. But. And hopefully, uh, hopefully she doesn't have a glass of water like Marco Rubio did that year. <laughs> yeah. Or I remember uh, Bobby Jindal, the governor of Louisiana, gave it one year, and he had this lugubrious uh, presentation where he was weaving in and out of the pillars of his state capitol in some kind of dungeon-like <laughs> yeah. atmosphere. And people yeah. said, wow, this is the worst thing we've ever seen. Yeah, it, see, it just never seems to turn out well. So, you know, I wish her the best of luck on Tuesday. I yeah. Know. Well, back to the question of fix the damn roads and what she's proposed. Do you think there's any chance the Republicans will, as they insist, Speaker Chatfield and Majority Leader Shirky, uh, that they will try to come up with something this year more for roads that the governor could accept? I mean, it could be a local gas tax option or something else. Uh, do you think that's likely or do you think what the governor did on Thursday morning, uh, the day after her speech, uh, is likely to be the only thing that gets done on Fix the Damn Roads this year, $3.5 billion in bonds. No, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, the Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker have 
have put alternatives on the table the past year. Um, and again, they've just been turned down left and right, including um, long-term solutions, but then also obviously the short-term um, influx of funding with the one-time um, money that was put into the budget, the $400 million. So they've done that. And to be honest, they at the end of the day, they did side with the 80% of voters that did not want the 45-cent gas tax increase. So yes, they came to the table with alternatives. The bonding is... And she admitted it. this is not a long-term road funding solution by any means. Local governments are going to be impacted the most because um, the money is, you know, that is currently being collected is not going to be able to go and, and uh, fix them and do repairs and all that. So road, a long-term road funding solution is still needed, necessary. And knowing the personalities of Shirky and Chatfield and just um, the, the way that they have been able to govern, collect, like, together as a partner, we got to get out. I wish we could keep going. Janelle Leonard, you were terrific. Great insight. Thank you so much for being our guest, Janelle Leonard. Thank you, Bill.